1: Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host for today, Shatranjay Mall. Today I'm speaking with Professor Yin Chao about his new book, From Policemen to Revolutionaries A Sikh Diaspora in Global Shanghai, 1885 to 1945, which was published by Brill in 2017. Professor Chow is an associate professor of history at Tsinghua University in Beijing. So thank you for joining the podcast today, Professor Chow. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for joining us. Our first question is always biographical, so I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up? How did you become a historian? How did you become interested in modern India-China connections?
2: Great, great question. Actually, I was born in China. I was born in eastern China, a city not very far from Shanghai. And uh, my bachelor actually is not in in history. I study economics and uh, management during my undergraduate studies. And then I came to Shanghai and I study international relations. So when I study international relations, I came across some. Some issues about the foreigners and the foreign settlements in modern Shanghai. They they had you know Jews, Russians, Japanese, and 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 Americans, and of course Indians, right? So then I, 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 I then I want to write something about the Jews in Shanghai originally. So my my first thinking is about to write the Jewish settlement in modern Shanghai. Then I moved to Singapore to try to you know pursue my PhD degree in National University of Singapore. I just give this proposal to my supervisor, right? And my supervisor said, no, you cannot do that. A lot of people already done this, right? You should change the topic. And then I have no mind. You know, I, I, I don't know anything else. So I asked my supervisor, what can I do? What else can I do, sir? So you should, should I ask you to give me a new topic if I cannot write something about the Jews in Shanghai? And he told me, okay, you should write something about Indians in Shanghai. Indians in Shanghai, actually before that, I had no knowledge of Indians in Shanghai. Then, uh, as a young man, actually, I have some confidence in myself, right? So I said, okay, if, if you just, uh, you know, give me this topic, then yeah, I can do it. Anyway, <laughs> so that's why I began to to pursue this PhD degree under this Topic and then that's why this book comes into into this book (laughs) six in Shanghai.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think uh, it's great that you were able to uncover this history because many people would not, were not, are not familiar with this history of um, you know Sikhs and Indians being in Shanghai. Um, and it's a it's your book is a very fascinating account of this forgotten history. So could you tell us um, um, some of the major arguments and contributions of your book? Mm, great. Because when I come to write this book, right, the Indians in
2: Shanghai. Then I try to, you know, to I try to bring or borrow some knowledge of, of other books, other studies, which are about Japanese in Shanghai or Russians in modern Shanghai. Because anyway, Shanghai was a cosmopolitan city in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And uh, I find that all of these books are about The Jews, the Russians or Japanese, their settlements in Shanghai, and it's only about the city and the migrants in the city. It seems like they don't have any connections with other parts of the world. At the beginning of this research, I also want to do such a, I want to, not I want to do, but I intend to write in this way, right? And then I find a lot of primary sources of the Sikh of the Indians in Shanghai found most of the Indians are Sikh, the Sikhs from the Punjab okay. in northwestern India. And uh, they were policemen, right? They were policemen in Shanghai. They were recruited by the Shanghai Municipal Council to, to police the local Chinese. Then I find that if I want to write a history of the Sikhs in Shanghai, I cannot ignore their connections with Hong Kong, Singapore, California, <laughs> the Canada, and India, of course. Right. So it shouldn't be a local history, it should be a transnational, translocal history. That's why the book became, in the end, the book becomes not a foreign settlement in Shanghai, but. A Foreign settlement in global Shanghai, foreign settlement in a global network that's a network centered in in Shanghai, right? So the main argument of this book, I think, is it's about the foreign from policemen to revolutionaries. It's it's about the transformation of identity, but it's more about how can we write a local history with a global uh, approach, right? So uh, my, my argument is that if you want to know the history of the Sikh community in Shanghai, you should put them in a global transnational network or transnational networks to understand this history. So that's an argument.
1: Thank you. Yes, when I was reading your book, I was sort of very struck by your use of the term translocal and sort of trying to not just place, as you were mentioning, like not, not just place the Sikhs in Shanghai within the local context of Shanghai and, the, and China at that time, but um, putting this in this global context, is, as you said. So um, that I found that to be really fascinating. So before delving further into the book, I had a question about the research process. So what sorts of archives and sources did you use for writing the book? Um, and where did you do your research? Hmm, great. Uh, first of all, I, of course, I
2: did my research in Singapore because I pursued my PhD in Singapore. And uh, because I was in Singapore, then National University of Singapore, their main libraries, and the National Archives of Singapore actually they provide excellent service to my research because they actually they have very good uh, archives and all colonial archives and the foreign office archives of the British Empire, right? But the problem is that my research is about Shanghai and in Singapore, I can only find archives about street settlements and and, and, and Singapore Mm. in particular. Right. So the, the interesting thing is that, of course, I went to Shanghai later and I find a lot of archives in local archives and the newspapers in Shanghai's archives and the libraries. But because I did my research in, in Singapore and uh, I spent most of my years in Singapore, then... I think, okay, I cannot waste my time and my opportunity of staying in Singapore and just doing a Shanghai study, right? That's why I try to make use of the archives in Singapore. I mean, this all about the Singapore and the street settlements archives. And try to connect or make a connection between street settlements, colonial archives with Shanghai municipal archives. That's why you, if you read my book, you find wow, well, how can you connect the Shanghai history with Singapore history, and of course Hong Kong? Because I also yes. spent one year in Hong Kong and try to explore and investigate the colonial office archives in Hong Kong, and then by connecting. Singapore, Hong Kong, and Shanghai, I found a network. This network is not about Chinese diasporic network. It's about Sikh diasporic network by using the three-place archives. And then I tried to explore a broader context. That's why I went to India. I went to the United States. Right. I also use the archives in India, especially in Calcutta, the Netaji archives, and in uh, California's Sikh community archives, try to bring the Sikh diasporic network in a real global um, uh, context. So that's basically the archives I used. And unfortunately, I want to say that I didn't find any. I mean, uh, Sikh manuscript or Sikh text. I mean, because this book is about Sikh communities and Sikh migrants, and uh, a perfect research should include the indigenous people's voice, their own writings, right? Of course, I learned Punjabi. I learned Punjabi, but the problem is that because of the limitation of my research and uh, Especially the PhD candidateship lasted only for five years in Singapore. That you should, you must, you have to graduate by the end of the fifth year of your candidateship. That I don't have time. I don't have enough time to explore more indigenous archives and indigenous texts. I didn't find any anything that written by 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 the Sikhs indeed, by the six themselves in, in Shanghai or in Singapore and Hong Kong. That's a very regrettable thing, I think, in my book. I should point it out. Thank you
1: thank you for sharing all of that it seems that you did a really uh, you visited so many different places and you really looked at many different archives Um, um, so I I mean of course when writing a book it's impossible to include everything that one could possibly include Um, so it's understandable how you were not able to include some of these uh, uh, Punjabi language or maybe Sikh um, perspectives Um, but hopefully there can be other scholars in the future who build on your work and are able to sort of include those sources as well if they are able to find them. Um, so as I'm sure our audience uh, must be wondering, um, and you mentioned about this, about how there, were, there was like a Sikh diaspora in Singapore, Hong Kong, and uh, in Shanghai. So how did these port cities in East and Southeast Asia uh, become home to an Indian and specifically Sikh diaspora community?
2: That's an interesting story because it's a very accidental but interesting uh, history. Because uh when the british they came to asia they came to colonize street settlements hong kong and then build a settlement in shanghai right they have a big problem they have big challenges from local chinese they didn't have any knowledge of how to police this local local chinese but you know that in the 19th century a lot of chinese they came to to singapore they, they, they stayed in hong kong and they they have a lot of secret societies and a lot of social problems. But the the British, they didn't find appropriate, appropriate policemen to, to, to discipline these this problematic elements, right? Because if they recruit a lot of British policemen, the cost is too high, right? Because the salaries were too high. And if they... Uh, employ the local policemen, I mean the Chinese policemen. The problem is that they 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 developed a suspicion that the local Chinese policeman was highly corrupted and they're gonna they're gonna collaborate with the Chinese criminals and even have some even big problems for the British col- uh, colonial authorities. So that's why they tried to do some experiment to 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 introduce a third element uh, to to police the local population, right? And then in Hong Kong, it's nine, it's 1860s. In Hong Kong, there was an experiment to try to see how about employing some Sikh policemen in Punjab and bring them to Hong Kong and uh, to police the, the 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 local Chinese. And this experiment got very successful. And then the Singapore police. Uh, authorities they saw the success the success in 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 Hong Kong right so they Im- imitate the Hong Kong's model and also employ some six to Singapore to to police the local population and finally some is Shanghai in 1885 as I mentioned in my book that Shanghai got the experience from Hong Kong and Singapore because the Shanghai Municipal Council they saw this. Sikh policemen were very helpful in oppressing the local riots. And also they thought that the Sikh policeman was a military man. And when the Chinese authorities, the Chinese government, if they want to invade or they want to intervene in Shanghai's local issues, they... British, they can actually they can organize these Sikh policemen and 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 make them as soldiers and to defend Shanghai's international settlement. That's the beginning of the Shanghai's Sikh police force.
1: Thank you. That's a really fascinating history and it's really fascinating how the British sort of used uh, uh, Indians or like used people from the Indian subcontinent and brought them to discipline like Chinese communities across East and Southeast Asia and how they were sort of uh, using one community against another, one Asian community against another. So that's really, really interesting. Um, I actually, as you were speaking, I was remembering uh, the movie Crazy Rich Asians in which there's a scene in which um, well, there's this really, there's a security guard who's sort right. of wearing a turban and so on. So it's turban.
2: very orientalism indeed. It's very oriental because, you know what, uh, in a lot of these kind of the, um, movies, right? I mean, the, especially movies that try to uh, describe the modern Shanghai, right? there must be some Sikh policemen sit behind the scene. And they, I, I mentioned in my book, right, they stand there. They didn't say anything. They just stand there with their turbans, with their beers, right? And it becomes like a colonial context. It, I mean, in this movie, that without the Sikhs, it doesn't look like Shanghai. If you want to shoot people it's Shanghai, it's modern Shanghai, it's inter- Shanghai's international... Settlement is a cosmopolitan Shanghai. You must include a Sikh policeman sitting behind, right? But it becomes an Oriental discourse and an Orientalist imagination. Where are the subjectivities of the Sikhs, right? Nobody cares about their subjectivities. Nobody cares why they come here, their everyday life, what they are pursuing in Shanghai or or, or Singapore. It becomes. It becomes like a decoration mm-hmm. of something very colonial, right? That's why I'm trying to restore the subjectivities of these sick migrants in East Asia in my book.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's it almost seems as if uh, the Sikhs or like pe- people wearing turbans are sort of just adding to the exoticized uh, view of like Shanghai or Singapore or any of these cities. And as you were saying, like they just make mute spectators. We don't hear their perspective. So it's great that your book has sort of um, re- reminded us of their subjectivity and of their history in all of these places and specifically in Shanghai or uh, within this global context. So, um, so in in chapter two, um, so I think in in, in the introduction and in chapter one, you you talk about the origins of uh, the Sikh community in Shanghai. So in chapter two, you provide a global m- micro history of Sikh migration through the case study of one uh, Sikh migrant named Isair Singh. So, could you tell us a little bit about him and about the broader story you're trying to con- convey through um, through Isair Singh's life?
2: That's very interesting because you know I'm I'm a great fan of microhistory. I'm a great fan of. Global microhistory. You know, there's a trend nowadays that try to ask our students to write a global microhistory instead of global history, and try to challenge the very meta mega narrative and mega narrative and indeed perspective of global history. Right. So we try to write everyday life of ordinary people in global in global history. And when I doing my when I was doing my PhD thesis right i i always remind myself that is how you must write something of global micro history and i read book i read quite a lot of books especially that book inspired me a lot written by a british historian robert Beakers. i think he's now teaching in bristol university he's a great historian of, 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 of modern china a modern china and he wrote a lot of books of modern shanghai and actually he had a book a book written about an uh, ordinary British policeman and his life in Shanghai in early 20th century Shanghai, and this guy is a working class British, and he came to Shanghai, right, and uh, he died in Shanghai, right. He had a lot of affairs in Shanghai, but this guy is really an ordinary people. It's not he's not a merchant, he's not a, uh, I mean, the politicians or or. or and powerful people, right? He's just the ordinary people, powerless, struggling in his life. You know, he got drunk and and, and he got a lot of family family problems and he exiled himself to Shanghai, tried to find a better life here, but then died being killed in, in Shanghai by the Japanese. So I was fascinated by this story. I think okay, if, if Robert Biggers can write a story of the ordinary British people in Shanghai, why why cannot write the ordinary Sikh people in Shanghai? Then mm. I tend to search this the information because, but the the problem is that it's more difficult than writing than writing a a micro history of a British because if you are writing a or. A, a, a micro history of British, You, of course, you can go to Britain, go to UK and find some prime, private correspondence and private uh, diaries or letters Then you can reorganize the life of these people, right? But the problem for the 60s is that we didn't find anything written by themselves, right? Just mm-hmm. as I mentioned, at least I didn't find. And uh, they didn't have private correspondence or letters, right? So then I searched the newspaper, local newspaper. I searched all new local newspaper about the Sikhs in Shanghai from late 19th century to 1940s. And I find a man whose name is Isa Singh. Right? The man character of this this chapter. And uh, interestingly, I find quite a lot of newspaper articles. I mean, not quite a lot, but at least the 20 newspaper articles mentioned this man. And I had to check whether it's different people with the same name or mm-hmm. one people, right? Then finally, I find the conclusion is that it's the same people. There's only one is this man, right? And because of these newspapers, of course... By using these newspaper articles, by using this information, it's still inadequate to write the micro-history, because it's still very limited information, right? So you, I find, okay, I can use these people to try to reflect or shed some light on, on the broader context of the Sikh everyday life in Shanghai. Where they stay in India, why they choose to come to Shanghai? Right? How they were brought to Shanghai. When they arrived in Shanghai, what was the infrastructure to support their everyday life in Shanghai? Right? And uh, what happened to them later? Right. So that's why I came to try. I try to write this micro history and and try to use the case of isa singer to bring more attention to the subjectivity or everyday life of ordinary people, or as I said, supportants, the foreign supportants in the cosmopolitan Shanghai.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory...
1: thank you yes absolutely as you mentioned that one of your efforts was to sort of you know move beyond um the these stereotyped or these like orientalized portrayals of like sikhs in shanghai so by by doing this global micro history and by sort of doing what's been done for um for british or other like, european mm, Or Europeans in uh, cities like Shanghai and sort of using that um, method to sort of recover this um, figure like that. that, That's, that's really, really interesting that you were able to do that. And um, yeah, it was quite fascinating to read about as well. So um, as Sikhs began to migrate to North America in larger numbers in the early 20th century, Shanghai developed into a conduit for migration flows between Punjab and um, North America, like United States and Canada. Um, And this was also a time of rising anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism as exemplified by the Ghadar party. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about this, about the activities of the Ghadar party in Shanghai and just the increased level of politicization of Shanghai Sikh diaspora in the 1910s and 1920s? Great.
2: Because this point is a really the turning point of this whole book, From Policemen to Revolutions. Why? Policemen, they were de- defenders of the British Empire, and the British Empire trusted them, right? They saw that the six they, was, they were loyal soldiers, they were loyal subjects, right? That's why we brought them to Shanghai, brought them to Hong Kong to defend our empire. We trusted them. But what happened? And the defenders of the British Empire becomes a rebellions of the British Empire. Become They try to overthrow the whole British Empire, not only in India, but also in China and in Southeast Asia. What happened to these Sikh policemen? So that's a turning point of uh, this book. And by using the case of the Garda movement in Shanghai from 19... 19- I mean, nineteen fourteen, the First World War, right, all the way to nineteen thirties or nineteen forties. I try to say that. Look, these men will not suddenly become crazy and revolutionaries, right? There was a process behind it, right? And this process is what is about the Sikh migration from Shanghai all the way to North America, to Vancouver and California. Why? Because of the money, because of the economic reasons. They came to Shanghai because they can earn much higher salaries in Shanghai than in Singapore, Hong Kong, or in Punjab, right? Mm-hmm. And they came to Vancouver or California because they find even more prospective, more promising economic opportunities in, in, in Vancouver, Right. That's why they try to organize themselves and they try to even they had a shipping company right? and, and they try to transport their people all the way to North America. But then they came across a problem. The big problem is anti-Asian sentiment in, in, in Canada and in North America in general. Of course we if we are studying the migration history we know that the anti-chinese sentiment was growing in the early 19, early 20th century in north america right and what we didn't know is this anti-chinese sentiment also influenced the indian migration to north america and this indian migration to north america and their struggling in this migration, inspired the Indian nationalist sentiment, especially the Sikh nationalist sentiment, right? So when they came to the coast of North America and when they found that the Canadian authorities didn't allow them to land on the shores of Vancouver, they got very angry. It's not only them who got angry. Also, their countrymen back in Southeast Asia, back in Shanghai, also got very angry. We were so loyal to the British Empire, but Canada at that time was still part of the British Empire, right? But when we tried to move freely within the empire, from one part of the empire to the other part of the empire, we were rejected. We were discriminated, right? So we were not as the British authorities claimed that equal to all subjects of the empire, we were inferior to, to the white men. Anyway, and the root problem, the root cause of this discrimination is that our home country, India, was colonized by the British. Then they came to organize themselves into a revolutionary party, the Gardar Party right, and which based in, in California. And then First World War happened. First World War broke out and all the Skada Party members tried to went back to Asia, went back to India and because they find that it's a golden opportunity for them to overthrow the British uh, authorities. And How? How? Because North America is so far away from from India. They must find a transition point. And this transition point is Shanghai. Why Shanghai? Why not Hong Kong, Singapore, or other parts of Asia? Why Shanghai? Because Shanghai is very special. Shanghai at that time was... uh, It had a a big problem of sovereignty. Because in Shanghai, there were two concessions or settlements foreign settlements and the China some Chinatown the Chinatown was governed by the Chinese authorities but the, the two concessions one is French concession the other one is international settlement the international settlement was largely I mean governed by the Shanghai municipal council which was managed by the by British merchants British businessmen right so the sovereignty although the two concessions, I mean, politically speaking, it's still part of China, but they were not governed by China, and they were not also go- they, they were not governed by British authorities either. So it's just a settlement. That's why when the secret revolutionaries they migrate back to Asia, they find Shanghai is the best place for them to hide their identity, to hide the uh, the, the the hunting of the British intelligence office. That's why Shanghai becomes a hub, revolutionary hub for all the seat guard of party members, right?
1: That's really intriguing to hear about Shanghai's special position, and because uh, because of its uh, unique, so, like um, sort of patchwork of sovereignty, with some areas being governed by the British and others being uh, connected with the Chinese. That because of that, like it was sort of more suitable as a place for you know Indian revolutionaries compared to Hong Kong and um, Singapore, because I, I guess because Hong Kong and Singapore were fully under British control, so maybe it would have been harder to sustain a revolutionary movement compared to shanghai so yeah that's that's really fascinating to here, um, I, actually one of the uh, uh, figures that I'm interested in, Rash Hari Bose um, he he too I think was interested and in, he tried to go to Shanghai at some point during this time and he sort of tried he was sort of connected uh, with the Gadar movement as well but I, I think he, he, his effort was not um, successful. Uh, one of the figures you mentioned here, I think his name was uh, Buddha Singh, could you tell us a little bit about him and about his role in um, in all of these uh, in, the, in the Sikh history of Shanghai Oh,
2: he was the uh, most influential and the most powerful Sikh man in Shanghai. I mean, even as far as I know, even in the history, in the 50 years history of the Sikh community in Shanghai, he was the most powerful man, right? And uh, he was a leader. He was he was a leader not only of the Sikh police force in Shanghai's uh, police force. But he also he was also the leader of the Sikh community and the Sikh society in in Shanghai. Mm. He organized quite a lot of Sikh religious activities and events in, in Shanghai. That's why the British think this man is very important and uh, and promote him very quickly. Because the British find this man, he had the Capability. He had the talent, I would say, to organize by using religion to organize his countrymen in Shanghai around the British, and uh, he kept teaching his people to loyal, to be loyal to the British rule in Shanghai, and keep and he kept uh, t- uh, telling uh, the the Sikhs in Shanghai that. By only be loyal to the British in shanghai we seek people in shanghai could get our opportunity right that's why the British in shanghai and the uh, buddha Singh, they find a, a collaboration i would i would say that they find a perfect collaboration that can mutually... uh can mutual uh Uh, help each other, right? That's why the Garda Party members, they thought Buddha Singh was the most dangerous man in Shanghai for their revolutionary movement because Buddha Singh, he was extremely loyal to the British. But on the other hand, he actually, he hunted down quite a lot of important Gadara revolutionaries in Shanghai. And he even had his own spies in Shanghai's Gurdwara, the Sikh temple, right? He had his own spies. And these spies, they attended all kind of revolutionary activities that happened in the Gurdwara. And they even had a list. Whoever came to Shanghai, joined the Ghadar Party movement, his name will be forwarded to Buddha Singer. And Buddha Singer will forward this list to the Shanghai Municipal Police and the police will just arrest this man. So that's why the revolutionaries find this man very dangerous and finally find a chance in 1927, right? They find a chance to assassinate him, right? And kill him. But the problem is in my book, I I, I point out that Buddha Singer's assassination, actually reflect that not the failure of the British intelligence work in Shanghai. The British, actually, they have a very sophisticated intelligence gathering network, not only in Shanghai, but across the world, from California all the way to India. And they had already informed Buddha that that someone would assassinate you, someone from Godot party would assassinate you and you should bring your bodyguard every day along with you. But that day, right, that day Buddha Singh happened to forgot something at home and he didn't ask his bodyguard to walk along with him. He, you know, he walked on he, he walked along and, and, and this gives this chance for the assassins to, to kill him. So it's a very fascinating story. And another thing is that actually Buddha Singh's great-granddaughter was still alive and they contacted me. And okay. they asked me to rewrite the story of Buddha Singh. They insisted that Buddha Singh was not loyal to the British. And, and And they insisted that Buddha Singh's assassination was because of the jealousy. Of course, I know that there was a lot of jealousy and affections within the Sikh community in Shanghai, right? So I'm very happy to know their story. I mean, from Buddha Singh's family and his descendants. I think they have some diaries or documents, family documents, right? So maybe in the future, I can write a new story of Buddha Singh, maybe can tell you more.
1: That's really fascinating. Uh, thank you. I mean uh, I think what, as you were speaking I was just thinking about another thing that we should keep in mind about the Sikh community that it wasn't just a, just a monolith with everyone having the same view but there were like different different uh, pol- political opinions and some people might have been more loyal to the British while others were sort of more revolutionary and more anti-colonial and as you mentioned like there was there had been this shift in many of them which led to the emergence of the Ghadar Party and it's also really fascinating that you were able to get in contact with his family and uh, get their perspective about the um, assassination of their um, ancestor so um, the Sikhs of Shanghai were also involved with the Indian National Army that is the military force in East and Southeast Asia organized through Indian diaspora networks um, and captured prisoners of war which would uh, with Japanese support fight the British and Allied powers during World War II. um so could you tell us a little bit about um, Shanghai's position within the Indian National Army at the time of the Pacific War and what what role the Sikhs of Shanghai played played in the Indian National Army, the INA.
2: Great. Actually, this this story is very interesting because it's the fourth chapter of my book. It's the last chapter of the book. And when I write this chapter, I have an idea. Because in Chinese mindset, during the Second World War, Shanghai was a lonely island. In Chinese, we call it a lonely island because... Before the Second World War, Shanghai was, of course, a cosmopolitan city. Everyone comes to Shanghai because it's a a playground uh, adventurers from across the world. And then during the Second World War, in the conventional nationalist historical narrative, Shanghai was totally isolated from the outside world, right? So it becomes a lonely island then i find but from the perspective of the sikhs from the perspective of the indian national army shanghai was never shanghai was by no means a uh, lonely island shanghai was actually a transporting transporting hub for the indian national army and for the sikh community across asia of course under the sponsorship of the japanese instead of the british right and uh, uh, actually In nineteen forty two, in the beginning of the Pacific War, Shanghai Sikh community was actually marginalized because at that time you you know Rush Behari Bose, right? Rush Behari Bose stayed in in Japan for long years since he exiled from 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 India in nineteen twenties. And the problem is that Rush Behari Bose and uh, another Indian National Army General Mohan Singh, they they paid their attention to Southeast Asia. They didn't have any connection with Shanghai. So although Shanghai had a very strong existence of the Sikh population, but Indian National Army in 1942, they forgot Shanghai Sikh community. So in this way, Shanghai's Sikh community being marginalized in the early stage of the Indian national movement, the Indian National Army movement, right? But it was not until Nataji until came to Asia, right? Another boss. Nataji both came to Asia and he reorganized the Indian National Army had his headquarter in Singapore, and then they moved the headquarters to, to, to Burma. And when uh, Netaji Bose tried to mobilize all Indian population in East and Southeast Asia, he came to pay attention to the Sikhs in Shanghai. You know why? Because he developed a friendship with Wang Jingwei, Wang Jingwei was a puppet regime of nationalist China because at that time, all occupied China was governed by a puppet regime under Wang Jingwei, right, the president of the puppet regime. And uh, Wang Jingwei met Ratachi Bose in Tokyo in 1943, and they became very close friends. And Wang Jingwei invited Ratachi Bose. To uh to 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 China, and uh, both came to China in 1942, and then both can came, came to realize that wow there was a large Sikh community in China, very large, even larger than Singapore, larger in Malaysia, larger in in Japan, of course, and all of them are Sikhs. And they had a military training because they were martial race, and most of them were employed as policemen, right? At least they were better than 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 than, than civilians, right? So this time Subhas Chandra Bose, he tend to realize that oh, I must make good use of this sick population in Shanghai. Right. That's why he ordered to build a lot of training camps in Shanghai to try to train all things and try to transport them into soldiers and then bring them to Burma to join his his campaigns of reoccupy India. Right. But unfortunately none of these six trained in Shanghai's training camp being transported to to to, 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 to Burma because of the uh, lack of transportation in the later years of the Second World War. So that's why Shanghai becomes a transport uh, becomes another hub of the Indian National Army movement.
1: Thank you. That's again a really fascinating history, and it uh, and it it just sort of underlines how important your book is because it sort of recovers this forgotten history of the Sikhs of Shanghai and the role that they played in the Indian National Movement in East and Southeast. Asia. Um, so, amidst the, the chaos and confusion in East and Southeast Asia after the end of World War II, all Sikhs ended up leaving uh, Shanghai. Um, but as we discussed earlier, um, their history in the city has been marginalized although they uh, remain present in literary and cinematic images memories and other representations of the city in the early 20th century Um, so could you tell us uh, a little bit um, as we come to the end of the interview about the significance of the story of Shanghai Sikhs in trying to tell a history that's freed from imperial and nation-centric biases
2: Mm, great because I write this this story not as a Shanghai historian. Interesting, because just yesterday I got an invitation and asked me to go to Shanghai to attend a conference, a a modern Shanghai history. And I said, I'm very sorry, but I didn't think that I'm qualified enough to be recognized as a Shanghai history historian, right? Because I'm really not a specialist in Shanghai. History. I try to write this history as a global history, as you can find it, right? And this is my, I think, one of the most important contribution of this book is not putting Shanghai as a modern Chinese city and try to study China's modern, right? I write this story, try to put Shanghai in a transnational network. This transnational network is not only about Western and Eastern, right? It's not about British and China. It's about India. It's about global India, about Indians in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in Shanghai, in California, in India, right? I think this is the main contribution. I think it should be the main contribution of this book that by reading this book, you find that, okay, we study Chinese history, modern Chinese history, we should jump out of this nationalist discourse. And we also need to jump out of British century, British empire history, right? And we can write a history from below. By telling the stories of the ordinary Isa think Buddha think, these ordinary people, and by telling their intentions, their strugglings, their ambitions, right, we can actually not only tell a global history, we can tell a global history from below. We can just restore the subjectivities as supporters who are, who cannot only. You no know, stay in their hometowns, waiting for the Westerns, waiting for the modernity to bring them to to other parts of the world. They can move by their own willingness. So that's the main intention I think in my in my book, try to try to tell our, our, our readers.
1: Absolutely, I can definitely see that as a major contribution of your book. Not just seeing uh, Shanghai as sort of a gateway to China, but rather seeing Shanghai also within these broader networks. Not just in East and Southeast Asia, but also in networks that connected back to India or connected beyond to North America or other parts of the world, for example. And um, and also the other point you said about like writing histories of the British Empire without putting the British at the you know in in the central role, like. I can definitely see that that's also a major contribution in your book. And I hope more scholars um, sort of, take that same approach in sort of writing um, h- histories of the British Empire without like, you know, making um, British uh, colonial officials like the uh, like the um, central point um, of their research. Um, so, so thank you for sharing all of that. And thank you for t- taking so much time uh, from your busy schedule to talk to me today, Professor Chow. Um So before we end, could you tell us what you are working on right now and what's next for you? Okay,
2: thank you so much. Thank you for your time too. And actually my book, will be my new book, will be published soon. I mean, maybe next month or, or, or just soon. And uh, it's a new book about Chinese sojourners in in wartime India, right? It's about the Second World War and how Chinese sojourners came to India because this book, the current book, is a continuation of the book we discussed today. Because just as we mentioned, right, Subhas Chandra Bose came to Shanghai. <laughs> we mentioned this episode, and uh, so when Subhas Chandra Bose came to Shanghai, and uh, he made a broadcast to to uh, Chinese nationalist government, and he complained a lot. He said, "When I was in India, because Subhas Chandra Bose used to be the president of Indian National Congress, right? Before he came." Uh, to be uh, imprisoned by the British. And he said, when I was a president of the National Congress, we sent a lot of help and assistance, medical help to China to help you, right? And now you send a lot of soldiers, sojourners, troublemakers to India to help the British defend their imperialism. So, I mean, wow, what happened to to, to these people, to these Chinese soldiers, to India during the Second World War? That's why I came to write the second book, and this book will become, come, uh, come out soon, right? So, um, yeah, but now I'm working on the third book, actually. And the third book is about the India-China infrastructural connections. I mean, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there were a lot of infrastructural connections the British imagined to build, to connect uh, India and China by bypassing the Malacca streets. So this new book is about how the British policymakers, investors investors and merchants imagine how to find a way through Himalayas, through Myanmar, to build railways, to build roads, to build, you know, canals, to connect India with China by bypassing the... Straight to Malacca. So that's what I'm now doing.
1: Thank you. Both of those sound like really fascinating projects. And I'm very keen to read the book that's going to come out uh, very soon. So thank you for telling us about that. I hope our listeners, uh, they, they, they read both your books. They read uh, this book on the uh, history of Sikhs in Shanghai and also this uh, other book about uh, the, the upcoming book about uh, Chinese sojourners um, in India. And it's really interesting because now I'm also as you were speaking, I remembered that Chiang Kai-shek, he traveled to India during World War II together with his wife and met Gandhi. So it's interesting that there was like two two different perspectives let's see about um the, the about the connections between China and India during World War II. Uh, so, I look forward uh, to studying and reading about that soon. Um, so, this was an interview with Professor Yin Chao about his book, uh, From Policemen to Revolutionaries A Sikh Diaspora in Global Shanghai, 1885 to 1945, which was published by Brill in 2017. Um, so, th- thank you for speaking to me today, Professor Chao.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for your time.